This episode was originally recorded in January of 2021. Wait, 2022. I am now editing it in February of 2023. So I don't know, make of that what you will. Welcome back to Check This Please, a podcast. Today, we'll be talking about episode 3.2, Taddy Tour. This was originally posted on April 13th, 2016. I am Secrets, and we will see how far we can push the limits of my cat's patience today. Who am I joined by? Hi, I'm Tomato. Just to really keep with the theme of uh, making sure this is a podcast that exists and that we have at least one thing to say, I'll let you know that I, like Secret, have both tea and water ready for this. So get ready. No, I think you could make the argument that tea is really water if you think about it. I mean, it's true, but it's got it's got leaves in it, you know, and my other water doesn't have leaves in it on purpose, although it is under a plant. So at any moment. It could change. So Biddy opens the comic by explaining to the tadpoles what the comics readers have known since 2014, the definition of kegster, the rules of Samuel men's hockey, and just what swassum could possibly mean. That's what happens. Who are the tadpoles? That's a great question that I can't answer because I've never been able to read closely enough to be able to remember. They're tango. They're whiskey. That's it. Who gives a shit about these other people? That's who they are. That's all we ever find out about any of them, except whiskey, a little bit. We're a very show-don't-tell podcast, of course, because we follow writing doctrine. And so what you were probably hearing us perform for you is the sense that these characters don't move us. Well, I'll quote from you. I hate the apples. I hate them completely forever. And I have to agree. The frogs, okay. Dex wooed me with his his manly ways or whatever. Like, fine, I get it. But the tadpoles, I don't give a shit about. Basically, we've got uh, these new characters. Tadpole is code in, in this comic for new characters. And we meet two new characters, and their names are Tango and Whiskey. And as we will find out, these are hockey nicknames. I do not think we find out here that Tango is short for Tangretti. Yeah. And Whiskey is short for Whisk. And I really think that some of the characters in this comic, maybe like there was a last name derived from what Ngozi wanted their hockey nickname to be. And these characters are like just at the top. Like nobody's name is Whisk. I don't think that's a real name. (laughs) Maybe it is. I don't know. But it's definitely like she wanted these two names. I guess we'll talk about Tango first because he's more annoying, but also less consequential. Although please imagine there's four asterisks next to consequential. And then at the bottom of the page, four asterisks, not really. And that will be true for almost everyone we see in today's comic. Including (laughs) Giddy. Truly. Not what you would think about a main character, but uh, here we've ended up. Anyway, so Tango's an idiot. He asks a bunch of questions. Like he does, in fact, literally ask what swasa means, which I feel like you can figure out just from like the shape your mouth makes when you say it. But Tango cannot. So he just asks a bunch of questions. This used to be Jack Zimmerman's room. What's your favorite team? Bylaws? Do we have to memorize those? Is it true Ken Parson came to a party last year? What was he like? Oh, uh, so you're a frog and I'm a tadpole? So I'm a tr- tad true pole frogman? Anyway, so the questions like go on and on and they're really stupid. But the, the thing that I don't understand is that we, the readers of this comic, and presumably if you are reading something called sequential art, you do read it in sequence. Like maybe that's crazy, but I'm just going to like throw it out there as one possibility that by this point, halfway through the comic, most people already know the answers to these questions. So I don't fully understand why Ngozi thought that she needed to write this strip at all and why Tango needed to ask these questions. Because in fact, Tango, not a real person. Readers, real people. Therefore, you would think that the reader's questions took precedence, but mm, maybe you're wrong. 
I imagine that maybe it was because of the influx of readers around this time because Ngozi started getting critical attention shortly before the third year of the comic. Maybe that was part of it. I'm not sure. But the first two years of the comic take like an hour to read maximums. I don't understand why we have to listen to Tango ask these questions. Well, I feel like we get basically two things out of this. And I'm not saying that these are things we wanted or things that were super necessary or valuable. But number one, it does inform something about Tango, which is that he asks a lot of questions and he's a dumb idiot. Do we care about this and does it matter? It doesn't matter to me personally on like an emotional level and it doesn't matter to check please the comic at all. But we are getting upfront characterization for this guy. Again, is it like worth our time? I don't know. It takes 35 seconds to read this comic strip. So I guess it's not not worth it. The other thing that this is seemingly doing is mimicking how storytelling is done in some serialized books and like serialized television or movie franchises. So you can very easily imagine a season of check plays where you need to pepper this information back in. Or it feels very like seminal turf masterpiece Harry Potter, where the first chapter to seven chapters of every new book is effectively hoeing rose we've already harvested. <laughs> where it's like, oh, you know, the boy who lived, who survived the, the attack and whose parents died and who has his mother's eye color. And remember how last school year he bought a troll. I don't know what happened to Harry Potter. I guess that's what happens. It's very much in line with like a certain kind of media property that as part of its form makes us remember all of these things. That said, I feel like this usually happens in media where it makes a lot more sense to like pick it up where it is. Whereas here, we can debate how long it takes to read the first two years of check, please. I guess it depends like how closely you read, but it's not like a real cumbersome text, I think is what we've decided. I think it's also a difference of something like in a movie or in a popular book series, not only is there space between installments, which is the case for Check Please, but those former installments are not free and aren't necessarily accessible. Okay, this is less true now in 2022 where everything is online all the time, but you know, okay, in 2016, pirating existed, but the internet was slightly different, whatever, streaming was slightly different, whatever. Maybe you didn't have immediate access to those previous texts. And so you might need that reminder. That's part of why that exists in the genre. But for check, please, if you need the reminder, you can literally click the back button four times. So I think that's also one of the failings of this is that adherence to, yeah, totally part of a form, but this form isn't actually helping the comic in this particular case, except I guess to like communicate, hey, this is a serialized YA adjacent text. Do you have any feelings about the fact that this character is from New Jersey? Uh, no. Unfortunately, I wish desperately that I did because being from New Jersey is like many people from New Jersey and unfortunately large part of my personal identity. But this character neither showcases any of the things that I value about New Jersey, nor showcases any of the things that I find irritating about New Jersey. And in fact, I find him being from New Jersey entirely inconsequential. So alas, no, I wish that I did, but I don't. He's Italian. Did you know that Italians exist in places other than New Jersey as well? Listen, I don't know if this is going to make it into the podcast, but actually maybe you can like explain me this. I recently came across somebody who asked me if the term red sauce, as in like red sauce joint or like red sauce restaurant was racist against Italians. Is it? Let no. me know. <laughs> I don't, I don't think so. Here's the thing. Could it be? Well, I guess the question is, can you be racist against Italians in America? And I think the answer in 2022 is no, one cannot. So don't worry about it. Perhaps at some point there was a, a sort of racial connotation, but listen, I'm living out here as a Mediterranean American and it's fine for us. Don't worry about it. All right. Thank you for speaking for the Italians, Domino. I'm very happy to. Anytime. Or shall I say, Pomodoro? <laughs> <laughs> 
check this please is back and ready to be canceled for being racist against Italians. <laughs> FYI. So despite the fact that tango is the filter through which the in- this entire strip is basically flowing and also the fact that he's like in every panel and like there's several close-ups on his face going I feel like I don't really have that much more to say about him. Because we don't learn anything about him other than he likes to ask questions. Yes, that characterization note is hit. I would say the fact that he's an idiot essentially also, yes, I understand that about him, but that's it. So why else would we care? Like there's nothing else to ask. Unlike with the characters, even including the frogs, there's nothing about this guy that feels special or interesting. So I don't care to discuss him more. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I agree. So let's move on to our next character, Whiskey, which is a beverage. You want to know what? I guess because it doesn't really matter. The first thing I noticed about him in this strip is that he's wearing a, a big, nice looking watch. Like Ken Parson was recently introduced wearing. He is also one of the first people to have a haircut that to me, when I saw it in 2016, I was like, whoa, that's that haircut that used to mean you were an older gay man from an urban area, but it's starting to mean you're a Nazi, which I thought was interesting. Do I still think it's interesting? No, because nothing about these people are interesting to me anymore. But at the time, yeah. You want to know what? Isn't this comic more interesting if whiskey is a Nazi? It, yes, and I thought that, listen, I am on the record in our friendship, although perhaps not in the world, I can't remember, there's been a lot of episodes of this podcast now, that Whiskey was going to have a bigger role in the comic, and that part of that role was going to be his friendship with the conservative, gay-hating, fat, the lax bros. Are they gay-hating for real? I don't know, but they certainly hate the hockey team for like seeming gay, it seems, in previous eras of the comic. So yes, this comic would be so much more interesting if Whiskey were a Nazi. And that would actually be making a point about something. But uh, nope. So he just has a Nazi haircut by accident, I guess. It happens to, I was going to say the best of us, but I've never had a Nazi haircut. So I, I don't know. I think what is true is that, yeah, a lot of people had this haircut at the time. It's the same haircut that Biddy has, just with a little bit more style in it, which is basically like shaved back and sides. And he has a bit more of a sweep over, comb over. They called them fashies or like fascist haircuts at the time. But it's basically like pretty much every single character in this comic every single male character there's nobody who's not male or female in this comic so let's just stick with that terminology pretty much all of them have this haircut or they eventually get this haircut which is some business toward the front and then close cropped sides and back yeah totally and i i'm not meaning to particularly call out his haircut as unusually drawn within this comic but i do think that the way that it's styled is noticeably different in some ways from some of the other characters so for me it it carried that visual subtext at the time i think especially like the sweep over like if you look at the person who sort of typifies this i think is richard spencer Obviously, he's not meant to be a Nazi. Like, we we find that out. Check this, please. Canceled first for insulting Italians and then for saying, what if whiskey was a Nazi? But here's the thing. I think he's wearing this watch, not so much because we want to align him with Kent Parsons specifically, but because something Ngozi has noticed about hockey players is that they often accessorize with big, nice looking watches. And we've seen Bob wear a watch. We've seen Jack wear a watch. It's possible other characters have also. I can't uh, call instances to mind, but maybe at some point I'll go back and check. I think this is basically like one element of personalization that you're allowed to have when you're a hockey player, so long as it follows this very boring, mask-coated, purely functional, even if these people aren't actually using their watches to tell the time. It's a very formal, almost old-school, conformist piece of male jewelry. So I think this is a kind of accurate observation about what a certain kind of hockey player looks like. And my mentioning of like Bob and Jack and also Kent is, I think, further indicative of the fact that Whiskey, we later learn, is an extremely good hockey player who is one of the better players on the team. 
And he's taken seriously as a hockey player in a way that, you know, some of these other guys who just populate the hockey team aren't necessarily. Whiskey is a hockey player. Of this group of guys here, he looks like a hockey player in a way that offhandedly Tango doesn't, Biddy doesn't. He's working in a sort of symbolic aspect in that respect. And I think that with the hints that we get about the tension that he eventually has with other members of the team, he's meant to represent that conformist attitude quite purposefully. Yeah. And I also get the sense that like, I mean, I don't know, does this actually come through in the actual comic at this point? I kind of can't remember. I think it may just be like, you know, Q and A's or like blog post info, but he is supposed to be Latino and from Arizona. So it is interesting that this guy who in the back end of the comic represents the sort of most typical hockey player establishmentarian figure is first of all, not white. And second of all, from a place where it's like, yeah, they they have the Arizona Coyotes hockey team, but it's not really a hockey place in the way that Montreal is or Boston is or Toronto is. Cold places. Exactly. I do think that's interesting. I don't think that ever makes it into the comic. I think it's just extra textual discussion. I do also think that would be something that would be really interesting, right? Would be why a character who isn't white would conform in these other ways, but the comic never really gets into it. And of course, I feel like we don't really pay too much attention to spoilers on this podcast, but if you followed Check Please, basically, you know that what ends up happening with Whiskey is that he ends up hooking up with a guy on the Lax team. And it's never clarified. He never speaks to any specific identities. So I don't know that we can say that like he's gay or he's bi or he's a freak or like who knows. But it is interesting that he represents this thing that Check Please loves to do, which is give you somebody who seems a certain way, but when you peel back those layers, they're actually something else. And with him, it's all sort of twisted up in that he looks and acts the part of a hockey player except for all of these other ways in which he is atypical. And this is never really mined for that much, although obviously by the time we get into year four, we'll discuss a little bit how he's getting on with Biddy and what this may or may not tell us about anything. I do also wonder if the third year of the comic had gone the way that we think that it would have had there been a different relationship between fans and the comic, that he would have been an interesting parallel to Kent, right? Like, I think that there is something interesting happening there that never gets explored in any meaningful way. You know, people ship them these days. Oh, they do? I can't bring myself to read a Pwisk fic or like whatever they're calling it. Parsky. I like Parsky. Um, I haven't read fan fiction in several months because my brain stopped working. So I don't know what's what's happening on the ground of check please AO3 tag these days. But I, would I read that? No, I don't. I don't care to. But I'm glad that people, you know, are following their hearts. Arts or maybe something else. Who's to say? Welcome. Welcome to Tango and Whiskey. We'll have more to say. Most of it bad about these two characters. Anyway, the next section on the outline is literally titled Why I Hate Them. And Secret, tell us, why do you hate them? Well, okay. So under C, why I hate them, it says one, it's because they never do anything in this comic as we will see. If you really just want the too long didn't read, too long didn't listen, it's it's because they don't really add very much to the comic. It's two new characters to keep track of and care about, except that they're not really adequately developed and the way in which their storylines play out is in Tango's case, he doesn't have one. And in Whiskey's case, not very satisfying to me. And of course, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna have more to say about it, but I guess we can dig in here. I think Whiskey has the makings of a good character and I wish he like impacted something, but basically to summarize what ends up happening with him, he seems distant from the team. This frustrates Biddy. He doesn't want to be like a full-fledged, all on board member of like Samwell men's hockey. Biddy catches him making out with a lax player. Biddy wants to talk about it with him. He doesn't want to talk about it with Biddy. Biddy is further frustrated that Whiskey won't open up to him. And then at the very end of year four, they have a conversation where they basically both decide, eh, 
And that's pretty much Whiskey's arc in this comic. I think Whiskey does serve some purposes narratively. I don't think that they're purposes he would be best suited to serving. But I think that he proves something about Biddy, which is that Biddy is perfect and deserves no criticism. And even though Biddy has human flaws, like being frustrated when people don't want his mini pies or whatever, actually, he's a perfect angel who supports everyone who needs support on planet Earth. So I think that Whiskey does do that very important job. And again, I think that he was like going to be doing, I think that there, the comic originally had more to say about this relationship between the Lax Bros and the hockey team. But because it's never explored, Whiskey just sort of peters out into like a milk toast ending as does most of the arcs of this comic so he fits the theme in that way i think with these two characters it's really important that if they were going to be introduced they have some sort of like reason for being here because we're halfway through this comic and it already has a lot of characters So it's not just like, oh, I don't find these two people that inspiring. It's that I don't find them that inspiring, especially compared to these other characters who we've already had one or two years to come to care about. And at a certain point, Tango and Whiskey and then all the people we're going to meet when we meet Jack's hockey team in a couple of strips, and then everybody who we meet in the fourth year of the comic when the universe expands even further, just takes up space and takes up oxygen that to me it would have been more satisfying to grant to the characters who are already in the comic that I already care about. I would say that it's realistic that new people join the team, but you don't have to spend time sort of developing them. You can just sort of nod to the fact that new people are coming onto the team. Something I have mentioned many times in talking about this comic, both on this podcast, I think, and just, you know, out in the world talking about Check, Please is that the comic is not practicing what is called economy of characters. Characters, plot elements, whatever it is, if they're in a narrative, they need to be there doing something or the time you spend developing them and working them in is low value. And the reason why is because it makes it difficult for people to like understand what's important in your story. Both Waltz and Progress and rereading it later, basically all of these characters who are now in the story are something that you are asking the readers to keep track of and they need to be keeping track of them for a reason or you're making your comic harder to understand. That's sort of my argument around why this is starting to annoy me. And this is not the last time this happens in the first semester of year three. As usual, I'll say there are ways to do this or types of narratives that you can use a sort of like distancing effect for the reader, blah, 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 to explore some motif or something. Like there are novels that do this and do them well or whatever. But this comic uh, does not succeed in that. It's about caring about people. That is like the point of the comic. And so if you emotionally exhaust your readers, essentially, by giving them too many people to keep track of and care about, it doesn't work emotionally within the story. And I feel like a lot of the time when I in the past have been like this comics narrative structure really frustrates me on the internet like a fool people will tell me well don't take it that deep you know like it's it's not that deep don't worry about it I've spent a lot of this podcast being like it is that deep so I don't need to you know bring up Derrida for once but I will say that I think that even if you are reading this through an emotional lens with like no attention particularly to narrative arcs etc Bringing in so many characters actually emotionally hurts the story. Like, I would love to care about Tango and Whiskey in theory, and in another comic, maybe I could have. But for a comic with this few strips per season, with a comic that we know is going to have a four-year structure, and so we know we are 50% through, like, from the beginning, we already know that, it is not a very effective use of space. I will say that I think that there is some, like, 
POV outsider fanfic influence potentially. POV outsider, if you haven't encountered that, is from an outside point of view. So someone who is not already implicated in the narrative, someone we don't know well. And Tango's perspective on Jack does give us insight into Biddy and Jack's relationship, including Biddy's little passionate that we'll talk about later. But that co- totally could have been done without devoting an entire strip to characters I don't give a shit about and learn almost nothing about. This could have been one panel in a strip used to explore other things. You don't need to know who Tango is to get that effect. It could be anybody. No, you don't. It could be a character we already care about because they're outside of the relationship. Like give us Lardo thinking about it or give us Shitty thinking about it or whatever. Give us one of the frogs thinking about it. We get the same impact. Even if it was a Tango character, we don't need to like know who Tango is to have him ask a dumb question and make us think about Biddy. Yeah, and like the thing is, I think uh, the other characters who you name, if you don't want to rework this that much to like put it in the mouth of somebody who already knows Jack Zimmerman, you can have a character who the audience doesn't know and isn't that familiar with, like do something or say something. So it it doesn't really matter who says this to Biddy, so long as it's, I would argue, somebody who Biddy doesn't already know because other characters we already know aren't going to be asking what was it like playing on a line with Jack because everybody else in the comic was also there. We've already been through this process in the previous year of the comic with the frogs. Everything that these tadpole characters do, setting up that Biddy is no longer an outsider but is now part of the team, setting up that Biddy has a leadership role and is taking these younger hockey players under his wing, giving us new blood and diversifying the cast in some sense. This is all already been completed with the previous generation of hockey players coming in. I don't know. At best, I would say to be charitable, it is establishing that as they as they sing on South Park, seasons change as the weeks become the months become the years. You know, there's always going to be a new generation of people coming onto the hockey team because that's how college works. And Biddy is getting older and time is passing. So like, yeah, this demonstrates that. But you don't have to like, have named characters who are going to be on the board to get that across. Yeah, I think that once again, Gozi is kind of being foiled by her overly rigid adherence to the rituals of the school year, which which also happened. We talked about it in the last two years as well. So the first year you set up the rituals of the school year, sure, fine. But then every time you revisit those things, right, there should be something new revealed or something interesting explored. And that just isn't the case here. I do think that this did something in terms of fandom, right? Like, I think that maybe there was an immediate gratification in terms of the audience. So there was The fandom was gathering quite a bit of steam. Maybe introducing new characters had that immediate gratification of excitement because people had new people to populate their fandom world with. But other than that, I I just don't really see why she felt the need to include them. I'm not sure. The fandom did like really respond to these characters and automatically there was speculation on their names. Whiskey and Tango are part of the... They are part of the phrase Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, which comes from the military communication. When you have to spell things out, you spell them using words to make sure that people hear the correct letter. But anyway, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot means what the fuck, and it's a very well-known phrase. So it was immediately speculated that there would be a Foxtrot. Yeah, apparently, apparently it is called the military alphabet, or according to Wikipedia the NATO phonetic alphabets. Sure. Okay, great. Yeah, it's basically like if you are reading off letters, like the end of my uh, postcode has an S and a T, and it's very easy to confuse S with, let's say, F or T with D. So if I'm giving my address to somebody, I will say... Sierra Tingo instead of ST because that's how you figure out that it's an S and a T. When you're talking on the phone, it can be hard to hear. Foxtrot. There is a Foxtrot. Foxtrot is introduced later in the year. It is a lady character named Denise Ford. And as I said, we meet a lot of characters in this year of the comic. She also 
does not really do anything. She's a cool looking character, but it's like, she doesn't, she doesn't like change the, she doesn't impact the plot. She's similar to Lardo, who she replaces as the manager of the team. If you just deleted her, it wouldn't impact the story at all. I guess the things that Tango and, sorry, not Tango, actually, the things that Whiskey and Foxtrot do a little bit are address some of the concerns coming from the first uh, year or two of the comic where people were like, whoa, this isn't a very diverse cast. So in the same way that Chowder made it more diverse and that Nursey made it more diverse, Foxtrot, who is Black, and uh, Whiskey, who is Latino, are adding to the diversity of the cast. So I guess they do something in that in that respect but that's not really story-based that's more like representation based or whatever I feel like we have danced around this and of course you know we have admitted openly that we are white people more or less so like I don't know that I'm necessarily the correct person to comment on what is the value of this but what I can note is that certainly there is debate among people who have a stake in it over what is the value of adding representation merely for the sake of diversity. There's, of course, critique of the idea of diversity in and of itself, that if you are able to affect diversity, which is something that is, to a certain extent, relatively superficial and doesn't necessarily impact, let's say, like, quality. And I don't mean in terms of, like, is something good or bad, but in terms of, like, what is the fundamental status of something? Is this something that effectively whitewashes and dismisses critiques because you can say it's diverse or that it's representative? Or in and of itself, does representation matter? And like, again, I I can't speak to it in terms of race necessarily, but, you know, this is, I think, something that we constantly circle back to when we talk about, say, like, what is Lardo doing in this comic? Like, what is her role here? Well, it's basically to like clean up after a bunch of guys. So like ultimately does the fact that she is a Vietnamese lady who is vaguely queer coded or at the very least she's artsy, like what is that actually doing? So I don't know how relevant this is to this actual like check please strip, but this is the sort of open thing that people are wondering about is where is Foxtrot going to come in and where she's going to come in is in the second semester of this year of the comic. And I'm sure we'll have more to say about her then, although not that much because it's, we don't know that much about her. She's like a stage manager and that's it. She has a great character design and likes handkerchiefs. Like that's what we know about her. That's for another strip because she is not in this one. So moving on, speaking of people taking over the roles that other people have, Biddy in this particular strip assumes the role that Shitty had giving the Taddy tour in previous eras. Yeah. And I would say along with that, what he is effectively doing is filling the role as the team's social and emotional center. He becomes the sort of mentor type to these characters, or at least he would like to be in a way that shitty was for him. So like later on, you know, later on when he runs into Whiskey making out with a guy and he's trying to basically coax Whiskey into having a heart to heart with him, what he's effectively doing is trying to get Whiskey to act in the role that he had in coming out to shitty originally in in year one because shitty was the sort of person that biddy would like to grow into i guess i think that's true because i think that that shows something interesting about the comic which we've discussed in in other ways that is it is obsessed with its own rituals and passing of time and growing of adulthood but that also that image of adulthood is one that is never unique it is always following a pattern set by someone else so I think in this particular case, we see that and Whiskey resists it because he doesn't want to be put into Biddy's position. But we'll we'll talk about that when we get there. You do point out that we can see the, the Lax house across the street. And so that's like a bit of foreshadowing towards the potential of the exploration of that dynamic with Whiskey, which already shows that because Biddy joined the team and was like whole hog in it, like right away or whatever. Whiskey is not necessarily that person. So there is like a little bit of of tension there. What is, I think, more compelling to me about this particular shot is the way it's visually constructed and how it contrasts to the original panels it's calling back to, 
in comic 1.4, The House, when Shitty is giving the Taddy tour to Biddy, who is, I guess, a frog at the time. This panel has Biddy standing in the doorway of the house or maybe on the porch. And we, as the viewer, the camera, so to speak, is behind him so that we are looking over his shoulder out onto the incoming hockey players, the tadpoles, versus the way that this was constructed in 1.4, where, yeah, Shitty is standing on the porch and then the group of tadpoles is you know, sort of below him at the bottom of the stairs in the yard. And then we, the viewer, are standing several feet away looking onto the scene. What makes this kind of cool is that Biddy was our lens into this world. We were also newcomers as like the reader of the comic. But now we are also indoctrinated into Samwell men's hockey. And so we are inside the house looking out onto these newcomers. It's elegant and well-constructed, except that it sort of further makes the repetition of like all of this information we already know that you're outlining further weird. If we are inside the house, if we are already on the inside of the hockey team, we no longer need to hear this. Best case scenario, like the way to be charitable about it would be to argue that we are now watching other people receive this information the way that we did previously. Biddy's speech is basically like a beat for beat recreation of what Shitty says earlier. It hits the same notes down to the way that Shitty says something very specific about you are going to step into the hockey team's house for the first time. The house. Biddy basically like reiterates that structure. You could read these two things very closely side by side and it would be very instructive. But the whole thing takes on Biddy's cast to it. So from that sort of initial couple of speech bubbles, Shitty starts to talk about how you'll have sexual experiences that are devastating and you'll get smashed and you're going to have to need to know this for, what do they fucking call it? Hey, is a palooza. Oh my God, I forgot that. Shitty is basically like, you're going to need to know the layout of the house, bitch ass, drunk and blindfolded for Hazapalooza. Biddy is saying sort of the same thing in terms of what he's telling the tadpoles about how they need to become part of the hockey team, but he's putting his own homey spin on it where he's like, I can't eat half of the things I bake myself. Please come in. You're going to spend a lot of time here. It's important that you really know this space. So in some senses, they're like saying the same things, but it's interesting how they kind of diverge along the lines of these two characters' personalities. You're right. I do agree that the visual language is very elegant. We don't have to know who Tango is. We can see Biddy do this introduction. We can see the parallel. One person asks the question about Jack Zimmerman. Like maybe he's peppered by questions. One person asks the questions about Jack Zimmerman. He says passionate. And then we get updates on the characters who we actually care about. And that would have done exactly the same thing but would have been more effective in terms of economy of character. Yeah, and a lot of the questions we get asked inside of the house by Tango, again, this can be asked by anybody, like any new member of the team. I think the answers of like, what is a kegster? What does Swasa mean? In fact, those are so obvious that if Ngozi had a slight bit more trust in the readers, it would have been fine to have people asking those questions and not answering them on the page because the readers know the answer. So we get that same sense without having the over-explaining, which I find a Bit irritating. Or the characters could be asking like new questions. Well, cat toy fell on the floor. Yeah, they could be asking new questions that we don't know the answers to. I don't know what those would be exactly off the top of my head. Even just little tidbits about the life of the house you could just throw in as a free exposition. But what's being exposed is stuff we already know. I think the thing that probably most people have noticed is that in the middle of this strip, somebody asks if it's true. I guess it's Tango. All these questions are asked by Tango. Asks if it's true that Kent Parson, evil hockey player Kent Parson, came to the house for a party. There's two things that are sort of notable here. The first is the fact that this question is asked at all. And the second is Biddy's response. I think it's worth pointing out that this question is asked at all because one of the areas of contention surrounding this comic is whether or not 
Ken Parson was ever meant to have some sort of larger role, is he an important character? Despite the fact that he appears only in a handful of strips, is his significance to the narrative somewhat larger? And one of the arguments, if you're in the yes, his significance is larger camp, is that especially throughout year three, he's mentioned several times where he doesn't appear. And we've talked about this before when he is mentioned. And one of the benefits, if you were the writer, to mentioning a character who hasn't been in the strip for a while is reminding the reader that this character is on the board. And again, with economy of characters, you really only want to do that if you're planning on doing something with the character. Because otherwise, why force your readers to remember that this character exists? Ken Parson is going to be showing up in a few strips. I think it's probably not spoiling anyone who's listening to say. If you want to make the argument that this character was never supposed to be significant and doesn't really matter, one thing you have to explain is why he keeps getting brought up like this. There is a way to say, well, if you guys don't think Tango matters, why do you think Kent Parson matters? Because Tango's getting more attention in this particular strip than Kent Parson, right? But if we take it as a given that we're supposed to care about Tango based on this one strip, we have already seen Ken Parson several times. If we are supposed to care about characters we don't know very much about, I don't really understand the way to understand Kent Parson being brought up here. And I also would suspect that just because Biddy's response, which we'll talk about in a second, isn't the most pleased, doesn't necessarily mean we're supposed to be 100% on board with Biddy's opinion at this time. Although eventually we do adopt that perspective, or at least the comic adopts that perspective. I also think that like our perspective, which we have argued multiple times and we'll continue discussing as we move on, is that he would have had a larger role had there not been fandom wink around him and or had the creator's perspective about him not changed. Both of which are valid. So I'm not here saying like, screw Ngozi for not telling the story I thought I was going to be getting. But like a lot of people, I get a strong whiff of something has been... I guess not retconned necessarily, but we've had a sort of directional change. This character was going to be back or have a larger role or his meaning was going to be larger than it ended up being. And this is a sort of fragment left over from a storyline that didn't end up playing out. Right. So what is Biddy's perspective on Kent Parson at this time? Yeah, so Biddy overhears the question, what is Parse like? And he says, oh, bless his heart. And the speech bubble in which Biddy says, bless his heart, is frosted over with icicles, which is a really cool way to imply tone. It's like what Biddy is saying is not like, oh, bless his heart, but like, oh, you know, bless his heart. Or something that's like, you can feel the way in which he's delivering this line. And uh, honestly, I think this is interesting, perhaps even more interesting than I wrote down when we were doing the outline, because Bless His Heart is basically coded Southernism for like, yeah, fuck that guy. Or yeah, this is somebody who's on the wrong path. Like I think sometimes judgy Southern women will say it about not people they hate, but people who they think are like making the wrong decision. They'll be like, oh, you know, just bless her heart. She just can't help herself or whatever. And it is this sort of passive aggressive judgment tone But it doesn't always mean fuck that person. It can just kind of mean like, oh, well, you know, she doesn't know what she's doing. Generally, when you hear the words bless, you know, bless his heart, bless your heart, whatever, it's delivered sort of warmly. That's the thing that makes it like a little bit of a backstab. It doesn't it doesn't look unfriendly. It it looks warm and positive unless you understand the meaning of it. So I think what's happening here more than just, oh, Biddy doesn't like him and is, you know, using this sort of Southern cliche. It's that he's trying to use the Southern cliche, but he dislikes Kent Parsons so much that he cannot even deliver it in this warm tone that you would usually get this line in. 
he's just like so chilly and so cold toward Kent Parson that he can't even have a little like sing-songy bless his heart when he says it. Just as anecdotal evidence, I had a Derby teammate from Georgia who routinely said this to say horrible things about people and other teammates. So it can be used in a fairly aggressive manner too. And I think that that's exactly what these icicles mean, right? Not only can Biddy not bring himself to sound warm, but in fact, he wants to take one of those icicles and drive them into Ken Parsons' heart. Yeah, like I, as I've mentioned on this podcast before, I lived in Georgia. People do say this. My friend Holly says it. It is pretty common down there. I think it's so common that at this point, it's possible that Tango is the only person who takes this literally when he hears, I don't know, maybe other people aren't as exposed to it. So I guess my question about this would be, do you think this is all jealousy or do you think it's like a genuine reaction to the exchange Biddy overheard at the end of year two, semester one? Keeping in mind that the scene between Biddy and Jack in the kitchen in Providence that we're going to get in 2.7 and 2.8, where they're discussing Kent Parson, chronologically has already happened. 3.7 and 3.8, right? Yeah. I think that it is not unfueled by jealousy. I think that that's part of it. That conversation, although it happened, wasn't what I would call informative. So I think that there were like lots of gaps in it that Biddy could have canonically filled in with his own deal. I think that's something Biddy does a lot. We'll see this in Whiskey's arc as well. Biddy sees the context of a situation and then fills in a lot of it with his own experience and own ideas. I suspect that he did that with this particular situation. And so I think that it is both jealousy because it's hard when your boyfriend's ex is mean to him. I don't know. And then also, I think that it's primarily that Biddy has made up his mind about what happened between them in a way that Jack hasn't actually given enough information to undo, basically. And so Biddy has this narrative about that relationship that isn't necessarily supported by what we know about that relationship. What do you think? The comic ultimately wants us to believe, yes, Kent Parson was crappy to Jack and Biddy is being supportive by not liking Kent Parson. And ultimately what we're asked to believe is that the argument we oversee during the Parse arc, which is 2.7, 2.8, and 2.9, I believe, very straightforward and surface level, it is what it looks like it is, which is Kent being a jerk. I'm not sure that was the original intention. I think that some of what we end up getting out of 3.7 and 3.8 was originally meant to be a bit more of like Biddy struggling with Jack's past himself and perhaps making assumptions about it that he perhaps ought not have made. But the text that we got is the text that we got. So love to be here speculating. But basically what the comic ultimately tells us in 419 is, yeah, he's an asshole. And Biddy was justified in being angry at him slash about him. I don't like that ending. So I have a hard time adopting Biddy's perspective in this moment, even though the comic wants us to. But the comic definitely wants us to understand this as a totally justified dislike. Everybody else in the room loves Kent Parson. Look at the way that Ransom is beaming when he is confirming that like, yeah, Parse came to a kegger. He has this like smug look on his face and everybody is just like very interested in like, Kent Parson is this cool hockey celebrity who's important to them. And they all think it's like really awesome. And Biddy is different because he knows something that they don't know. So it's this interesting dynamic that's happening. And again, if you think back to that weird Facebook page that was written from the perspective of John Johnson saying, who's really right? Is it Biddy who's the protagonist or literally everybody else who is also trustworthy? Sooner rather than later in the lifespan of this comic, we depart from that kind of questioning what's going on. But you get a real disjunction here between how people feel about Ken Parson and how Biddy feels about Ken Parson. 
I think some further evidence for that reading will unfold throughout the rest of the first half of this year and then sort of get changed in the second half of this year because the question of interpretation of events and interpretation of things people say is very much present as a theme throughout this whole half of the year with Biddy and Jack's relationship, which is secret and not secret, right? So I think that suggests to me that originally there was going to be more of an exploration of what does it mean to know the truth of a situation? Well, anyway, uh, Tango's last question is, what was it like playing with Jack Zimmerman? And Biddy says he's passionate. I wish I could describe the look on Secret's face because it is unimpressed. So actually, it's that I was thinking, what does Biddy really mean? Does he mean that Jack has like a self-lubricating asshole? Like, where are we? As he discovered when they fucked in that truck. Yeah, so I mean, almost immediately once this strip was posted, people were like, this means they had sex in that pickup truck that we saw in the previous strip. Well, guess what? It's January of 2-2, and I am still supporting Ngozi on Patreon. So I know that she's been posting spoilers for the upcoming Madison comic that gets into the events surrounding that truck moment more fully. And while I don't know if they fucked per se, that is, was there anal penetration? I don't know. Definitely they do something sexual. And I've seen, if, if you're on that Discord, you can go and check it out. There's screenshots of Jack naked. So, or shirtless anyway. Biddy's shirt is open. So they're definitely like, something's doing. I would say for Jack and Biddy that mind fucking is at least as important as anal penetration. But anyway, I also support that Patreon, but I am locked out of the email that allows me to get into it. So someday I'll solve that problem. In the meantime, um, I'm glad to get updates. Tomato, you have had that problem with that Patreon email address. Not only the entire time that we've been doing this podcast, but I think basically the entire time we have mutually been in Shepley's family. No, no, no. It definitely was not that because we we were both following that secret Tumblr that she had. This has only been like, I don't know, a year and a half, two years. Not that bad. I think it's been two years. Listen, my life's a mess. What do you want? Anyway, let's move on. Minus two, it's fine. Okay, so like the other kind of relationship that's floating around here is this shitty and lardo background stuff. There's a moment when Tango is asking Lardo, who is in the equipment room on a ladder, getting equipment for the tadpoles, questions about, I heard there was a guy who did this. I heard there was a guy who did that. And the answer to all of the questions is shitty. The character is not in this comic. And by that, I mean, starting now, basically, he's no longer a character in the comic. We'll talk about it later. Lardo's response is this short, stop asking me about it. And when I initially read this, I was thinking there was a lot more going on in Check, Please than perhaps met the eye. And what I presumed was that this was indicative of some sort of background conflict between Lardo and Shitty that was going to be explored in the comic. And again, I feel like we're saying this a lot. No, it isn't. Why did I think that? Well, I don't know all the reasons, but I think part of it is Ngozi's habit of sort of winking at the audience, like all will be revealed. And so all of these little delicious tidbits of tension felt like they were going to lead to something because like, I don't know, you think narratives have an ending or something? I think I was also perhaps reading it in dialogue with what had happened in 2.11, which was Junior Show, which is the last time we got something overtly textual about Lardo and Shitty. Lardo was running out of the room crying after finding out that Shitty was going to law school. And as you may or may not recall, listener, from my saying this 85 times, I initially read that moment to be Lardo not just crying about how Shitty was going to be leaving Samwell, but something more along the lines of she loves him, but it's complicated because he's this attention magnet This event is supposed to be about her, it's her artwork, it's her show, and yet the whole thing has become about Shitty getting into law school. She's the person who's still on the team, she's here getting equipment for these new tadpoles, Shitty is not even in the room, not even a presence anymore, and these people who have never met him are already like obsessed with him and like 
it's like she doesn't even exist. She's only like a, a source of <laughs> shitty related information. So I kind of read these things together as if the subtext of their relationship was going to be about this dynamic. But spoiler alert, it's not. And this never comes back and isn't important at all. That said, it is sort of like realistic. Shitty is the kind of guy who people are like, whoa, that guy. Like, yeah, he had a mustache or whatever. I think we've talked about the kind of guy that Shitty is. So it's like, yeah, I believe that they would be asking these questions. But again, it's in the comic for what reason? Which is especially irritating because there is actually a lot to say about the relationship between Shitty, this woke mustache having Harvard bro, and Lardo, who is Vietnamese, who, as I recall, is first gen. I'm not sure if she's first gen in college, but I, I mean, I think she's first gen American, as, as I recall. I could be wrong. And of all the potentially difficult narratives in this comic, I totally trust Ngozi to handle the intricacies of a relationship between someone whose life is impacted by privilege of a particular kind and someone whose life is impacted by a different set of experiences, especially experiences involving like immigration and race and gender. And I totally think she would handle that really well. I mean, it sounds like she's currently writing a comic which deals with some of those things and it would have been really satisfying to see her get into it with these characters, but she she doesn't. I don't know whether that parallel perhaps with her own experience was too much for what she wanted to explore in this comic or what. I'm not sure. I don't want to speculate too much about her personal experience, but at this point, the comic is no longer a fun passion project and has become her livelihood. And so it's, it's very frustrating to have these meaningful things that are not fully explored. I believe that Lardo is... Uh... Uh, first gen. I think that's, I didn't track down the little bit of extra somewhere on the check please Tumblr that confirms that. But my, my recollection is that yes, that's the case. And I believe it's also the case that Ngozi is herself first gen. I believe that her parents emigrated from Nigeria and that she was born here. I also think that yes, her next sort of graphic novel project, I believe it is called Flip. Well, Tomato is frozen. I'm back, I'm back. Tomato has unfrozen, yeah. And Gozi's next project is called Flip, and it is about effectively, you know, a first-gen Nigerian girl. We had talked about this a little bit, I believe, when we talked about the Lardo Shuji Dibs thing. The only reason why this is really worth mentioning here is that once again, we have a scene where Lardo is being asked about Shitty. She is doing something for the, the male members of the hockey team and her presence in the comic is not extrapolated. And it's basically just like a nod at the fact that she still exists. It tells us precious little, arguably nothing about her interior life or what is going on with her. Nice to see her. I think she looks cool here. Right. And the lack of the exploration of this tension that we both read into this strip, again, speaks to the sort of hammering out of complexity that happens in the latter half of the comic, because... As Biddy and Jack are exploring their own relationship dynamic, it could have been really interesting to have Lardo and Shitty dealing with their own parallel but different difficulties that come from their own backgrounds, right? And it could have been really illustrative, if that's how you pronounce that word, to have these two relationships co-developing. Well, speaking of checking in with favorite old characters, let's return to a segment that we like to call Chatter Infantilization Watch. Interesting comic in the story of Chatter Infantilization, because here we meet a bigger baby who makes Chowder look like an elder statesman. However, this is all very quickly canceled out when he tells Whiskey that perhaps his nickname should be Whiskers and then names a bunch of animals with whiskers like a toddler. I think it's also obviously for humorous effect, at least that's the desire to pair him with Whiskey because Whiskey is this very reserved, very like hockey-esque dude, but it just serves to make Chowder ever more a baby as it often is sort of underscored by his use of multiple exclamation points. Even in his capacity as mentor, Chowder once again fails to be over the age of five and that's just hard for him. Even after he's like, don't you want the name Whiskers? And Whiskey says, no. Shatter keeps being like, but, but, but. And it's like, no, he said, no, like, let it go. It's this weird missing of social cues. And he also says his own name is not his favorite. And then he says, Chatter is not even my favorite food, which is like such a juvenile reason not to like your hockey name. I don't know. It's just very baby's first mentor program or something. I don't know. Maybe someday he'll grow his own whiskers, but I'm not, I'm not holding out for it. 
All right. Well, now it's time to talk about the good panel. Yes, we agree that this is the good panel in our notes. Well, you want to know what? I will proceed this by saying I think it's very strange that Dex just like lives in the basement with the water heater. He is not allowed out because he's too hideous to be beheld by human society. His only job is to stand there pointing at the boiler. He spent too much time with the lobsters and he's taken on their defensive natures. (laughs) She doesn't want to leave the basement. His eyesight, if he goes above stairs, is probably going to be messed up for spending all that time in the dark. Yeah, the pressure on his body shifts and it's uncomfortable. (laughs) No, okay, but like in all seriousness, the actual best panel in this comic is this one of Jack and Shitty from 2011. What is going on in this flashback panel? Let me tell you. This is Shitty and Jack on their caddy tour or soon thereafter. Shitty is scrawling the rules he thinks he remembers hearing on the tour onto the wall behind the boiler. He is holding a beer and is clearly drunk. He is wearing sunglasses in a basement. Jack is standing behind him, asking him what the hell he is doing. Jack is not drinking, but the can of beer in Shitty's hand in the foreground kind of makes it look like Jack is holding it out to the viewer. He isn't, though. You do wonder why Jack went down to the basement with this drunk guy. You know only Shitty is drunk because he has little drunk bubbles floating around him and Jack doesn't. I would argue that this was Jack's drink period. I was just looking but failed to find a post that you sent me not long ago where it was suggested that Shitty calls Jack baby girl because A, agreed. Very true. I want to credit the, the Tumblr user who said this, but I can't find them because I, I'm I'm too verklempt by talking about it. But like, it's... True. So first of all, Shitty calls Jack baby girl in this basement and no one can prove anything else to me otherwise. This is this is where that begins. That's what I truly believe. Second of all, this is for me the most emotionally impactful panel in the comic because I already know why I care about these characters. I know why I care about their relationship. I know why it matters that they're having this interaction. And I'm getting so much information about their dynamic, about the dynamic of the team, about their history. It is legitimately more informative to me because as a longtime reader, I don't know these things than Tango's questions telling me things I already know. So the rest of the comic, like, yeah, okay, does a couple things. But this panel is like fire for me. It's like, oh boy, oh boy, I'm seeing into the baby girl mythos. Do you know what I'm saying? The thing that Shitty is writing down, the first frog who scores has to get shit-faced. We see Biddy doing that when he is the first frog who scores in year one. That's cool. Also, we have these references to the people who would have functioned for Jack and Shitty the way that Jack and Shitty functioned for Biddy and Biddy is now functioning for the Tadpills. We also basically learn in this panel that the quote unquote hockey bylaws are just basically like some random shit that Shitty wrote on a wall behind the boiler. Although it is very interesting that this man who becomes a lawyer, even at like 18 years old, was basically invested in like codifying the laws so that everybody would always know what they have to do. So it's just like very true to their personalities. And also the fact that Jack is just like, um, eh, and like, oh my God, shitty in his like ugly, like hipster era glasses, pre-flow, wearing like a button-down shirt over a t-shirt and Jack in like a hoodie looking much younger and like less assured is everything. (laughs) It's delicious. I did find creator of Baby Girl Jack Zimmerman, which is a Tumblr user called Uncle Shits. So do with that information what you will. Uncle Shits, you're a prophetic genius. Because I think that this really embodies a dynamic of their friendship where shitty is as you said a sort of magnetic center and jack is just sort of along for the shitty ride if you will and i just really love that i think that it it shows us a lot about how their friendship developed it's also nice because as we mentioned there's actually like surprisingly little interaction between these two characters who are supposedly best friends outside of the extras like in the comic itself and so this kind of fills in a little bit of that absence so it's it's really good So like, not a bad strip of the comic. There's a lot going on. It's just really hard for me to care about the tadpoles. 
I'm not like excited to like see more of them or like discuss them, except in the sense that like I'm gonna be a bitch about it. But yeah, no, this this panel makes it worth it. And I can imagine if you had really been indoctrinated into check please for several years and then all of a sudden you saw this flashback it being something that would just light up all of your neurons that is what happened my brain became full of what fairy lights what are those called christmas lights little lights that's what happened my brain got taken out and replaced with lights and has never grown back which is which is why i'm still thinking about check please in 2022 probably um but it's a delight i will say that i took a look at the blog post from this comic and it is further evidence that ngozi is losing faith in her readers i think we talked about that before ngozi over explains that there is no foxtrot yet and she even explains like what bless his heart means and what the icicles mean so somehow you were able to figure this out without reading the blog post but just in case Ngozi has sort of entered a a, a new era where on the one hand, she's creating these like really interesting and layered or potentially layered like complex emotional threads to be picked up later. And on the other hand, she's like, here's how you read the comic. So I didn't remember her being this didactic this early. So it's interesting to, to rediscover that. I was reading the comic at this point and I was sort of just getting into it but my understanding is that she is responding to what people are saying on Tumblr in response to this strip people are speculating on the foxtrot thing so she's telling them yes and people are whatever the other thing you said was I mean, I think that's true, but I also think that that's an interesting extension of what she had already been doing, which is responding to fans. And I think that we're going to see that relationship start to impact the comic more and more. So I just think it's interesting that she is offering an interpretation because sometimes she just stokes the the flames of speculation, right? She would have been like, hmm, is there a foxtrot? I don't know. But here she takes a more firm stance, which is interesting. Gozi, let your readers talk it out. Maybe they don't want to have your confirmation of what the icicles mean except obviously yes they did and we are aberrations or something it's very soon after this particular strip is posted that she starts arguably making significant decisions for the comic on behalf of the fan base we'll get into it i think it's happening like at the end of this current semester oh yes But before that is one of my favorite panels of all time. So just you wait, everybody. Just you wait. Welcome back to Check This, please. We missed you. I missed us. I missed us, too. I'm not going to presume that others missed me. Well, as you say, I didn't say you missed us. I said I missed them. So, like, I felt safe declaring that. If you didn't miss us, why are you listening? Go away. And uh, if, if for some reason... You have just today decided I'm going to start listening to Check This Please, the podcast. I'm going to begin on uh, installment number 59. Where can people find our archive? Great question. You can find us at checkdispleased.tumblr.com or excitingly, still, even though it actually happened last year because time is the flat circle, et cetera, at checkdispleased.xyz where you can find transcripts for some of our episodes and we will continue to put up transcripts as we manage to finish them. And where can people find you? I was going to say, where can people find you? Oh, well, they can find me at tomatorights.tumblr.com. How about you? I am on Tumblr at Camillier, C-A-M-I-L-L-I-A-R, and my AO3 is familiar, Foxtrot, A-M-I-L-I-A-R. I forgot, I'm also on AO3 at Tomato Greens, Tomato underscore Greens. Yeah, Foxtrot, Alpha, M something, I... And the rest, et cetera. Okay. Are you frozen? She's frozen, everybody. Next time, episode 60, we are going to be looking at hockey shit number six, Locker Room, which of all the hockey shits, strips of which I have never really been much of a fan, honestly, I think is kind of like the best one, but we'll test it next next time. I can't remember, so I'll, I'll have to tell you once I've read it. It is, it is a forgettable installment, but it's sort of the last hump between us and enjoying the rest of the comic. <laughs> yeah. See you then? See you then? 
see you soon. Yeah, this is where the outro will be here. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Check This Pleased is written, recorded, and produced by Secret and Tomato. Our theme music is by Tomato, and our art is by Nahangan. That was very legit.